Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Endeavor podcast. Today is Friday, May 31st, 2019, and I'm your host, Stephen Schroeder. This is the second episode I recorded in Quebec City at the Geological Association of Canada conference. And in this episode, I spoke with Timothy Roy. Tim is a PhD student at the University of Ottawa doing dosimetry work on Antarctic sediment samples. Dosimetry is pretty much what the word sounds like. It's the measurement and calculation of the amount of radiation that some material has received. We talk about how and why he uses dosimetry on Antarctic sediment and how that might be important to research being done on Mars. Before I get to the podcast, I just wanted to first mention that this and the previous episode were supported by the Ideas Fund at the University of Calgary. The fund supports undergraduate students in the Faculty of Science to participate in leadership or professional development activities, like going to conferences. If you're a student in the Faculty of Science, I really recommend checking it out. One more quick note is that I couldn't get a room at the conference center to record this episode, so you might notice a little bit more background noise than usual. All right, now for the podcast. Tim was such a genuine person, and he was really great to talk to. I'm sure you will really enjoy this episode. Without further ado, here's Tim Roy. Let's uh, get into it. What's your background, and what are you? What have you been most interested in? How did you get interested in it? Okay, well, my background, uh, I did an undergraduate degree at the University of Ottawa in geology and in physics, kind of like a, a double major program there. Um, when I was at the university, you know, the education was pretty split up, like very well-rounded. I initially chose that program because it, it touched on a whole lot of different studies in, in math, in, uh, in different sciences, like in chemistry, in physics, in geology, in uh, computer science as well. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had a very wide uh, pool of interests, I guess. And I, I didn't really know where I wanted to deepen that. I think that's a common experience for a yeah. lot of people just yes. going to university. Yes, I'm sure it is. Yeah. So, you know, um, I, I just wanted to, to taste a little bit of everything and see where that led me. Um, ultimately, my interest really developed uh, outside of my formal education. I registered to a co-op program at the university. Okay. And I got involved in, in research uh, out of my second year. So I worked with a professor at the University of Ottawa, Jack Cornett, who did a lot of research on uh, AMS or accelerator mass spectrometry. Okay. So really high resolution, um, high sensitivity analysis of, uh, of materials, trying to look for like ultra trace level uh, isotopes in, uh, in materials. Okay. So I was looking at quantify, like out of my second year of university, uh, with very little formal education in chemistry and in these other things, I was here working with this guy, trying to measure tiny amounts of uh, anthropogenic nuclides in uh, nuclear waste. So we're looking to quantify rare lead-210, uh, the anisotope of, of lead that is produced uh, by nuclear decay chains. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, some of the applications of this were to try to look for lead, traces of this uh, radioactive isotope of lead in, uh, in human urine to try to quantify a radiation exposure in people um, in non-intrusive ways. Oh, wow. Was so, no, there a specific, like project or application that you were looking at? What I was trying to do is um, develop a method to measure this rare isotope in uh, samples in which it would be very dilute. So looking at really trace levels, so concentrations that uh, like relative to stable lead that are, you know, parts per quadrillion. 
know, down wow. 10 to the minus 12, 10 to the minus 15 kind of uh, concentrations of lead 210 versus stable lead 206. Wow. Yeah. So, so just developing this method would open a lot of doors for other future applications. And that kind of uh, methodology development and instrumentation is what really interests me a lot. Yeah, that's awesome. How did you get into that ex- that co-op experience? Was it just through the co-op, co-op program at your university? Yeah. Or? yeah, well, when I accepted my, my offer to do an undergrad at the University of Ottawa, uh, one of the, the things I checked off was was for co-op. Oh, yeah. And that was a really cool experience, really uh, really useful and kind of like almost forcing you to get some professional experience in your undergrad to get some work experience. And yep. I found that that was incredibly helpful because, you know, I didn't really know that what I preferred was this kind of method development, developing new ways to, to measure uh, quantities in science. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it exposed me to different things like nuclear physics, like uh, radiochemistry, that is, is just not something that you learn early on in your university career. Mm. Can also so, give you a lot of, like, valuable practical skills, right? Yeah, exactly. So getting that practical experience, um, exposing you to, to new environments, to new subjects, I found that that was incredibly helpful and really enriching. And it's really what set me down this path, uh, you know, as a, as a research scientist, I suppose. Yeah, so what was the next thing that you started working on after that? Oh, so after I worked my first summer as a, as a co-op student at that lab, I, I did more co-op actually. I got an eight-month placement at the National Research Council. Wow. Where I was doing uh, ionizing radiation and radionuclide metrology. Okay. So metrology is the science of measurement. And uh, I was where well, I worked on two different projects. One that was looking at uh, furthering our understanding of uh, how radiation um, interacts with materials. Mm-hmm. So kind of like you call that a form of like dosimetry, how radiation is absorbed in materials. Mm-hmm. And another one in trying to better quantify um, radi- like radioactive materials. So looking at quantifying radiation and looking at the detection of radiation. And so that's related to the project that you're currently working on, right? Yeah, so that, that kind of led me towards what I'm doing right now, which is uh, applying this knowledge that I gained in, uh, in detecting radiation and endosymmetry and applying it to solve problems in geology. Right, so now you're specifically trying to use that knowledge of radiation and how it interacts with materials to try and date rocks basically right is that the idea yeah yeah that's pretty much it um a method called optically stimulated luminescence and thermoluminescence dating i'm looking at uh, the amount of radiation energy that is absorbed by materials like sediments after they're buried and relating that to how long they've been buried for so the longer that these materials have been buried for or the longer ago that say like a, a lake has been here and developed a shoreline um, the more radiation that they will have absorbed since being buried, and and yeah, I can I can look at that signal and relate it to an age, which is really cool. Without That's amazing. To, uh, <laughs> yeah, without having to like dissolve it or look at uh, isotopes or anything, I can just take this sand, uh, bring it back to my lab, shine a light on it, and tell you how old it is. Yeah, that's so cool. This maybe is a weird question, but mm-hmm. who, like, who was the first person to figure this out? <laughs> to figure this out? Yeah. Oh well, this was done back in the. 80s, I want to say. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was in the 80s. Okay. By uh, by a, a couple of different groups of researchers. So the the idea that um, energy is stored in materials, this idea of dosimetry, has been around for a very long time. 
Um, initially, a lot of people looked at this quality called thermoluminescence. If you heat up a material, um, you can excite some electrons and make them emit energy uh, that's proportional to how much radiation that's been absorbed. And that's been used in dosimetry for like nuclear energy workers for quite some time. Okay. Yes. But uh, in the 80s, this uh, idea of optically stimulated luminescence was uh, published by actually one of the people that's helping me um, set up my facility at the University of Ottawa, Dorothy Godfrey-Smith, a researcher who now works at uh, the Department of National Defense mm -hmm. and had previously uh, done a lot of this development work, I think, at Simon Fraser University and at Dalhousie. So they discovered that uh, material that that uh, thermoluminesces, so that uh, emits energy when you heat it up, can also emit this uh, electron stored energy when you shine a light on it. And that this energy is, uh, is like, uh, say, this, this energy signal accumulates in material since the last time that a light was, shone, was shown on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it tells you how long something has been buried for, uh, much more precisely than uh, heating it up. You know, which kind of makes sense that you know, if you were to heat up something uh, versus shine a light on it, it would, uh, it would like the energy that's coming back is more related to the last time it was exposed to light or the last time it was exposed to heat. Right, right. So I guess if you're looking at how long ago something was exposed to light, then actually getting those samples must be you have to kind of do it carefully because you don't want to mess yeah. something up, right? Yeah. What's uh, the... Because all of these samples that we're taking are light sensitive. So let's say I, I want to figure out how long uh, ago um, this material was, was buried. I have to go into the field. I have to take this core of sand or of sediment um, in a dark tube. So I have to keep it all in the dark, tape it up really good so it stays dark, ship it back to my lab in the dark. <laughs> Uh, in my lab, open it up in the dark, sort through all the grains in the dark, and then the first light that it sees has to be the light inside of my instrument that's there to excite it to make it emit its energy. Right. How do you... This is kind of a practical question, I guess, but how do you work with things in the dark? Is it just that it can only be exposed to certain wavelengths of light? or? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So um, in the lab, we work under really dim red light. Right. Uh, and it's red light because it's the lowest uh, energy visible photons that we can use. And working under dim conditions with this low energy light, we're actually not giving enough energy to these to these electrons to excite and, uh, and emit that stored energy. We're right. still keeping our signal and we're not distorting uh, our results in do by doing so. So it's kind of like a what they would use to develop photographs it's that kind yeah, of yeah exactly so we we use a lot of the same technology as in a photographic dark room yeah um that's really cool yeah it's, <laughs> instead of it being like photosensitive film it's photosensitive sediment really <laughs> that's really cool yeah, actually it's really practical for us because all these things have you know dark rooms have been around for forever so we can just recycle that technology and apply it to answer some really cool scientific questions how widespread is the this technique for dating OSL dating is, is quite popular, actually. Um, it was really heavily in favor throughout the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Even now, it's still, uh, it's still quite extensively used to date uh, wind-blown sediment, you know, sediment that has been exposed to light and that has been deposited fairly recently. Okay. It's very good at uh, looking at these things. It's very popular in, in, in China and in Asia, where there's a lot of uh, wind-blown sediment in low-west deposits. Mm -hmm. 
and a little bit less so in North America. Just Lowest because is like glacial dust, right? So yes, it's like really, really fine dust, right? Yeah, okay. fine dust. Um, pretty much any type of wind-blown mud, muddy kind of sediment in, in a dry environment. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it, it can accumulate in quite impressive thicknesses. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so th- this technique is, is quite favored in a lot of circles because uh, you don't need to have uh, any specific type of uh, like organic constituents. So radiocarbon dating is another very popular technique that can be used to date these recent kind of, uh, of events, but it requires that whatever it is you're dating has carbon in it. Right, yeah, th- that's kind of a dating method that everyone yeah, kind of like uh, radiocarbon dating is the gold standard if you want to try to figure out how how old something is. Yeah, but it's quite limited in its applicability because you need carbon to figure this out, and you also need it to be less than like fifty thousand years old. So if right. you're looking at something that's around that age, you know you might be out of luck. Whereas uh, this technique that I'm using, optically stimulated luminescence. It might not be quite as precise as radiocarbon dating, but it's non-destructive, and you can look at ages of sediment that has quartz or feldspar, two of the most common uh, minerals in sediment. You just need to have that, and then you can figure out how long ago it's been buried, uh, you know, anywhere from hundreds of years to hundreds of thousands of years. Wow. So it uh, extends that, that age range quite far. Right. So are you, would you say that you're more involved in the method or kind of the application of this technology? Um, well, because the methods have pretty much already been developed, I'm looking much more at, uh, at the application. Okay. But a lot of my energy so far has been focused on setting up this lab at the University of Ottawa so that okay. we can do this. So what's the application that you're looking to do? So I'd like to take this developed technology and apply it to study... Uh, if some very interesting landforms in a dry valley in Antarctica. So it's this region uh, called Lake Untersea and the Silk Valley that is right next to it. So this is in um, Droningmothland or old uh, German Antarctica, pretty much directly south of, uh, of Africa. Okay. It's a really interesting study region that's a couple hundred kilometers from the coast of Antarctica in this uh, valley surrounded by tall mountains and uh, with a little bit of a glacier kind of poking it from the side. So because it's on the, in the middle of the continent, it's very cold, and it's actually very dry. There's very little precipitation going on in here, and yet uh, there's, there's a, a lake inside of the valley that's covered in ice, and uh, that they have found traces of life inside. Oh, wow. So there's these really cool bacterial mats in this lake um, that never thaws, that's never exposed to the atmosphere. And uh, we want to try to figure out how life is thriving here, how, uh, how groundwater and ground ice circulates within this really cool valley, because the conditions are very closely um, related to those that we would expect on Mars. Right. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Have you been to Antarctica? Have I been to Antarctica? I haven't been to Antarctica yet. Um, some of my colleagues have been. Um, Nikki Marsh, uh, someone who presented at the conference here today, uh, was, was showing the work that she's done on this region. And my supervisor, Danita Sad, and other gra- grad students from our department, uh, from our group, uh, have been going. But I really would like to go uh, either this year or next year to collect some samples for myself and you know, and see Antarctica. It's not too often that you get to go there. No, that would be, yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. Is this a project that you were especially interested in or was it like a project that kind of came to you and it was an opportunity that 
yeah, was presented to it's, you? It's, it's been a bit of an interesting journey there. The, the project, the specific project and application was more so presented to me than, uh, than you know, me going out and seeking it. When I, when I first started my graduate studies here at uh, the University of Ottawa, I was working under uh, Professor Jack Cornett, and um, he had gotten this uh, OSL-capable machine from Health Canada. We had it on loan from them, like an indefinite loan, and we were looking at really cool new applications um, that, that we could use you know, to uh, make, make use of this uh, piece of instrumentation. Mm -hmm. uh, just a couple of months into the project, though, uh, my supervisor passed away in a bit of a tragic uh, cycling accident. And uh, since then, you know, I've been working with, uh, with new supervisors, and they've been incredibly helpful. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a bit of a struggle to, to find a project. I wanted to continue working with this instrumentation and developing our capabilities, but uh, I, I didn't have very much direction. So you know, I started working with my new supervisors, uh, Ian Clark and, uh, and now Denis Lasselle, and they were actually the ones that suggested uh, this really interesting application of this technology. I was mostly uh, focused on uh, you know, developing the methods and trying to figure out how we can use this thing, but I, I wasn't thinking like a geologist at the time. You know, I was thinking more of a, of a physicist and trying to, to see what I could do with this, and then they suggested that I apply it to this really cool site where Denis Lasselle has been doing a lot of his work uh, bringing students and trying to study this uh, this valley as a proxy for for Mars and where we would expect and how we would expect to find water, how we would expect to maybe search for life on our on our closest neighbor, and it's it's really cool. I'm I'm very glad that I've been exposed to this project and get to contribute to it. Yeah, I think anything involving space just it really inspires the imagination and it makes other people excited when whenever you're thinking about yeah, Mars yeah. or the Moon or anything, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's definitely a cool buzz like kind of buzzword to get in there yeah no but it, it is exciting right and especially when you have people thinking about maybe going there in the future that's and there's a lot of effort right now to send people back to the moon and then maybe eventually mars too so yeah i mean oh the u.s government would love to get people back onto the moon in five or ten years and spacex wants to bring people to mars pretty soon as well so. yeah <laughs> So yeah, I mean, it's re it's definitely really cool. Actually, uh, some of the motivation behind uh, studying ground ice on our planet is to see where we expect to find it on Mars so that spacecraft that go there would then be able to mine this ice, make fuel out of it, and, and come back. So, you know, if, if you ever go to Mars, it would be cool to be able to come back, and this is one way to do it. Yeah, no kidding. And if you're going to live there, you need water. So Yeah, exactly. You need water no matter what. And... Uh, and yeah, you know, whether you need to dig deep for it, uh, you know, if uh, there's ground ice everywhere on Mars, that's fantastic. But, you know, where, where do you find it? Do you find it 10 meters deep? Do you find it 200 meters deep? Like, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, uh, that's pretty important to know before you go there so you bring the right equipment with you. Yeah, and we're just getting that technological ability to take those high-resolution photos mm -hmm. or, like, with this new rover, get seismic data from Mars, right, to be able to learn more about that because... We probably don't want to send people unless we're pretty sure that we're going to be able to, you know, survive. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Actually, yeah, some of the next missions to go to Mars uh, will probably carry more um, specific instrumentation to look for this ice. To, yeah. To do actually some superficial coring even. So back to your project. Okay. Where do you see your project going in the next few years? 
Well, my project is uh, I'm trying to bring some what you call it, geochronology to this uh, dry valley in Mars to figure out how long ago that uh, different landforms have been in place for. So evidence of old of an old lake in a valley next to uh, the one that currently has Lake Untersea in it that has traces of old life. I want to see how long ago this valley um, was filled with a lake, how old um, these traces of old life bacterial mats have been there for. Reconstruct the history, see how long that lake existed for. Um, when uh, ice retreated out of there, I can I can look at all of these different landforms, like lake shorelines produce sediment. I can see how long ago that's been buried. Moraines uh, produced by glacial advances and retreat. I can look at those and figure out uh, how long they've been in place for. Mm -hmm. And you know, just solving these temporal questions will help us better direct our efforts on the current ongoing searches in Lake Untersea. Uh, for life and to maybe contextualize that and see, you know, how it could relate to environments on Mars and what kind of rates we would expect to see for these different geological processes on Mars. Yeah, no, that's really awesome. Like around your yourself, what are some of the most exciting questions that other people are, are asking? What else excite, really excites you in the field, I guess? I don't know. In my, in my specific research field, uh, you know, my, my knowledge isn't very deep yet. I, I don't even know uh, too many other researchers that are doing this kind of specific work. You know, there's there's a lot of work ongoing in, in OSL and stuff, but uh, I know. No, that's a, it's a good question. I, I definitely have to look into that. Yeah, no, I mean... You get too absorbed in, uh, in studying and uh, taking courses, actually, at the PhD level that uh, I haven't thought about contextualizing my research and like the general bubble of scientific knowledge on, on the subject. So Yeah, no, I think, uh, I mean, when you're doing specific research, it's pretty easy to, you have that, you know, surrounding bubble and you're always working within that. But I think that's kind of a human thing. Yeah. <laughs> but no, no it's, uh, I'm glad that you brought it up because it just shows me that I really need to, uh, you know, take a step back and read into the topics a little bit more and, you know, see see what else is going on in my specific field. Yeah, I think that's what kind of what these conferences and things like that are for is you learn a lot by talking to people, some things that you wouldn't get just, you know, reading or, you know, going online and looking at papers. So where do you see yourself in like five years once you're done this research? Well, uh, in five years or so, you know, hopefully I'll be finishing up my PhD. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, have that under my belt. And then uh, what's next? Well, hopefully I'd be able to get a, a postdoc placement somewhere and, uh, you know, continue on developing the fields of research, but also getting some valuable experience in teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, teaching is something that I really enjoy doing. Uh, it's probably but my favorite thing about being a, a graduate student at the moment is getting the chance to interact with younger students, uh, being a, a, a TA, and, you know, it forces you to go back to some basic concepts, learn more yourself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, helping, helping others understand topics that are so interesting and, and, you know, just so close to my heart and learning more about it myself, I, I feel like it's a very re rewarding thing to do. So, you know, in five years, I might not be a professor or a lecturer, but uh, I'd like to orient myself to get there in, you know, maybe 10, 15 years from now. Yeah. Can you 
tell me any more about your teaching experience. Like what was it like to, to start doing that and get involved in that way? Yeah. Um, you know, as a graduate student, you pretty much have to be a, a TA to, uh, to help fund uh, your program. And, you know, I was excited to do that from the get-go. Uh, I was TAing some first-year geology courses, like one uh, Earth Systems and uh, Earth, Earth System Processes and then uh, Earth's Materials. So those two are really cool uh, first-year kind of geology courses. You introduce a bunch of students to these to these concepts that they're not always taught in high school or even in elementary school. So it's very new, very exciting to them, and it's nice to share that with them. You know, like uh, looking at different rock types, going out into the field. I think that's probably one of the best parts, being able to take students out uh, doing field trips and showing them the complexity and just, uh, I, I guess, all the knowledge that you can gain just from looking around you is really, really cool. And I love to, to see them kind of like light up and, and, you know, share that passion. I think that's what draws a lot of people into geology is that aspect of going out into the world and seeing systems that you can understand yeah for sure i mean it's it's one of the the few studies i guess that involve both going out and just enjoying nature like you pretty much get paid to to go camping or to go on a hike collect some material or some uh some observations on your way and then you get to go back and use a lot of really cool technology to answer some some very profound questions do you have any advice for maybe students who are still early in their academic career? Yeah. I guess students early in their academic career, especially those in a, in a STEM field, I think it's really important to kind of broaden your horizons early on, get some practical experience, you know, apply to, uh, to work in a lab or, or with a professor maybe in, in the field of research over the summer. Expose yourself to different studies, to different work environments, and get a better idea as to what you like. You know, if you're if you're a student in university, you're already investing a lot of time and a lot of money into uh, developing these skills to put yourself into a certain career. You know, the the biggest favor you can do for yourself is to kind of test the waters in that career and really see if it is for you. And if it's you know if it is, fantastic. Maybe you'll you'll be able to narrow down your interests and see where you want to direct yourself. You know, for like course selections in future years to get towards like your dream job, or you know, if you don't like it, it gives you a chance to change your mind before it's too late. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you know, think... definitely get get some experience early on. Get some get some practical research experience. Talk to your professors. Talk to people in industries related to your field, and and see if you can tag along. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for talking with me today. It was it was really great. It was, yeah, uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, thanks for sharing all your experiences. It was great to hear about. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for the music that you're hearing right now. Please subscribe. And if you're feeling up to it, give us a rate and review for the podcast on iTunes. If you have any comments about what we were talking about today, or maybe you just want to say hi, check out the podcast on Twitter or send an email to endeavorpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.